up a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. The Restory Show, Season 3, Episode 1. Today's podcast is brought to you by BookLaunchMentor.com. If you've ever dreamed of writing and actually publishing your story, you'll find all the mentoring you'll need to fulfill that book-launching dream at BookLaunchMentor.com. Now, before we jump into today's show, I would like to highlight the iTunes review of the week, and this one comes from L. Honigs, and I don't know where that's from or if it's a girl or a boy, but the person says this, I love this podcast. Mary does a great job interviewing her guests and gives us a fast-paced listen. With some podcasts, the host isn't comfortable with the interviewing process, but this one feels like you're sharing a cup of coffee at the kitchen table with sunshine pouring in the window. I love listening to Bethany. She was comfortable about sharing her story, and it was amazing. And Bethany was actually from season one, episode one. So if you want to start all at the beginning, you can go there. So I would so appreciate it if you could write about the incredible stories we hear on the Restory Show. So if you review and share it, it helps expand the reach of these powerful messages. And also, if you'd like to be on the Restory Show, click the recording icon on marydemuth.com to share your own two-minute story. And we highlight some of those in every episode. Sometimes we've gone a few weeks without that, but if you share one, I like to highlight it. So today, in the third season of the Restory Show, episode one, I am welcoming myself. So I am not going to be interviewing myself, but I'm going to share a very difficult story, but also a triumphant one. And this is really the first time that I have talked about this publicly. I wrote about it to my email list about a month ago and got an incredible response, which was just beautiful to experience. If you'd like to be on that mailing list, I do give exclusive content there, and that's at marydemuth.com. Right now, we're giving away What to Do When People Poop on You. It's a free ebook. It's several, it's long, so it's not like I'm just giving you a handout about it. It's actually an ebook, and I would love for you to have it as a gift. And uh, yes, I do help you to overcome what to do after people poop on you. So hop on over to marydemuth.com and jump onto my mailing list. It would be great. So anyway, I shared this story with them, and I wanted to not be uh, have an interview for this first one just because I felt compelled that I wanted to start off season three with something vulnerable and hopefully encouraging too. So many of you know my story, although I don't know that I've shared it in excess on this. I mainly just interview guests with amazing stories. So I'll give you a little background to my own story first. You may know that I had a difficult upbringing and so many crazy things went on in the past. So uh, I won't go into all of them because there's just too many, but they are chronicled in my book, Thin Places, if you want to read my memoir. And I'm always like really surprised when I run into someone who's read that book because they know so much about me that I almost feel like we have to start a deep friendship right then because they've read all the deep, dark secrets of my life. So, But probably one of the main stories of Thin Places is me telling about my sexual abuse at age five. And it was a difficult experience, uh, as you can imagine. But the gist of the story is that while I was in kindergarten, I would go to a babysitter's house after school. So I'd have half-day kindergarten in those days. And I would go to her house, and her name was Eva, and she was a chain smoker. So I called her Eva the chain-smoking babysitter. I'm pretty sure she's not alive anymore. And 
every day around three-ish, when the older kids would get out of school, these two older boys, probably 16, 17, 18 years old, hard for me to tell because I was only five, they would knock on her door and ask for whatever reason they knew I was there. And uh, they would ask if I could come out and play. And the first time they did that, there was no there was no grooming for what was going to happen next. So usually when a child is preyed on by a pedophile, there's a grooming process where, you know, they kind of ease their way into it. But these boys were new in their offenses. And so they didn't bother to groom, which either being groomed is bad too. But this was just so shocking to me because they just took me into this park that had these very deep ravines so that if you were at the bottom of a ravine, there's no way that anyone could see you and you could yell and not, no one would hear you. And they took me to the bottom of this ravine and they, uh, they sexually violated me. They raped me there. And I remember sometimes they would put their hands over my mouth. Sometimes they would, they would definitely take their turns. They would, they would do all sorts of terrible things to me in the woods. And sometimes, and this would go on for days and days. And they told me things like, if you tell anyone, we will kill your parents. And I so believed them. I thought that anyone taller than me would always speak the truth. And so I believed them. And I thought, well, I can't tell anyone because I don't want to be responsible for killing my parents. And they also used a four-letter word to describe what they were doing. And I knew that that was a terrible word. And if I said it out loud, I'd get my mouth washed out with soap. So all of that, plus the intense fear that I had of this whole thing and an intense fear I had of these boys just kept me quiet for a long time and months and weeks and days. And I was making it through my kindergarten career and acting out in kindergarten, which was weird because I'm an extremely compliant rule following girl, which is great and not great. And so for me to act out in school meant that something was terribly wrong, but just I just didn't have a lot of adults in my life at that moment who bothered to, I don't know if bothered is the right word, but who chose to investigate what was going on. And so I really felt alone, and I really felt like there was nothing I could do, that this was my fate. I would get home from school and a few hours later, and I couldn't judge the time because I was in kindergarten that those boys would take me out. They would take me to their home and they would do what they did in their bedroom while their mom was making cookies. It was just a, it was just, it was horrible. So finally, when they started inviting their friends to join in, there was something inside of me that snapped. And I thought, if this keeps happening, I'm going to die. I was very afraid of death and I had constant nightmares nearly every night of killers chasing me. And I think it was just because of the trauma that I was experiencing daily. And so I finally got up the nerve to tell someone. And, and oddly, I, I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell my dad. My dad wasn't living in the home anymore. I had a stepdad at that point. But I didn't feel safe telling her and I didn't feel safe telling my dad. I think deep down, I realized I wasn't sure if they would rescue me. And so weirdly, I went to Eva, the chain-smoking babysitter, who had allowed me to go with these boys. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was only five, so she was the closest rescue I had. And so I remember how tall she seemed, and I remember pulling on her, her sleeve and asking her to bow, you know, kind of bend down close to me so I could whisper that word, that terrible word that I was afraid to say. And I, I told her what those boys did to me, and I remember her rearing up toward the ceiling. You know, I was little, she was big. And she said five words that would ruin my life forever. She said, I will tell your mom. 
And I thought, I'm saved. I'm okay. I'm going to be all right because my mom's going to find out and it's going to be okay. And so the next day, I, I bet, and I, I don't remember, but I bet I skipped home from, from kindergarten, got into Eva's house, ate my lunch, and waited for the time to come for the boys to knock on the door, knowing that they wouldn't. And then they knocked again, and by golly, she let me go with them. And in my mind, I thought, she told my mom, and my mom doesn't care. And so for years, until I finally told my mom the story, when I, 10 years later, I thought no one on God's green earth was going to take care of me. Not one person, certainly not my babysitter, not my mom, since she apparently knew. Although, you know, later I found out she didn't. But as a little kid, that's what I thought. I thought the only person that was going to save me, and I didn't know Jesus at this time, but the only person that was going to save me was going to be me. And so I decided, okay, I don't want to die. I'm going to have to save myself. And now when I look back or I see five-year-olds out in the world, I get crushed inside because I realize those are some pretty mature thoughts for a, for a five-year-old. I had to grow up really fast. And so I thought to myself, I am going to avoid these boys at any cost because this is tearing me apart. And so I would run home from kindergarten. I would shove down my peanut butter and jelly sandwich or my tuna fish sandwich, and I would run to Eva's bed. I would pull the covers over my head and I would pretend to sleep for hours and hours and hours because I didn't know exactly when those boys came. So I figured if I just stayed asleep until my mom picked me up around six, I would be safe. And it worked. And the only reason it worked was that Eva was too lazy to walk across her house and try to rouse me when I pretended to be asleep and I would not rouse. And so I had saved myself for the last couple months of my kindergarten career. So that's the story I wanted to share with you. But here's the next part of the story. Go forward so many years, so 44 more years from that moment. And it was, uh, we, my mom was very generous and offered to help us come to Seattle, which is where I'm from, and to come home for Christmas. And a few days after Christmas, our kids uh, flew home because they had responsibilities. They're old now. And I was, I decided, and I, I just felt this compelling that I had to go back to that place. I had to go back to that place of extreme violation. And I was terrified. And the night before, I was so scared and couldn't sleep. And um, again, this is the first time I'm really talking about this publicly. So bear with me. How this happened was last year, I was in Geneva teaching a writer's intensive, and I've taught two in Geneva, and I just finished teaching up one in the United States, and I'm going to be doing that four times a year, which is so fun. So I'm going to be doing another one in May, so stay tuned to hear about that. But anyway, during this writing intensive, I met this lady, and she, you know, I tell my story in the midst of all this, and, and she comes up to me and she says, well, I'm, I'm from Seattle. And I have a friend of mine that lives in that area where you grew up. Do you mind if I share your information and maybe she can help you? Because I've been trying since pretty much like 1998 to figure out who these people were and what this was and where it was and all of like the geography of it all. And I couldn't on the internet, I couldn't find it. And I had tried and I had investigated and I'd really considered hiring an investigator, but it just never quite worked out or it was just money that I couldn't afford. And and so my friend that I met in Geneva, her friend went to the Seattle Public Library and she found 
at least one of those boys. And she gave me the address, and it's, it was on the exact same street that I lived and that Eva, the chain-smoking babysitter, lived. And all of that was within one block of each other and within one block of my elementary school and within one uh, extended block of the terrible park that the boys brought me to. And so when my husband and I, I, I didn't do this alone, thankfully, Patrick was with me, we drove to the area of Seattle where this happened. And I just felt in my gut that I was just terrified, just to be honest. And as we got closer and closer to the little house I used to live in, and actually the the picture that you see on the Restory show, that picture is me standing in front of the little house I used to live in when I was five years old, tiny little white house. And you see me smiling there. And I have to say that I was peaceful during this entire ordeal. I was able to smile. It was a beautiful gift from God to me. So we got out of the car in front of my little house, and I just stood there for a while. And I I felt like I was in that scene of Forrest Gump where you want to start hurling rocks, you know, when Jenny was hurling rocks at that house, and she just couldn't, you know, it was just too much. And I, I, I didn't hurl rocks. Thankfully, I didn't damage any property. But I just remember the hell of how I, every night going home and after all of that, that violation and just feeling so unsafe and so afraid and so afraid to fall asleep and all the nightmares and all of that and just what that little house represented in my life. And then we started walking down the street. We had to cross over a large street to get to the other side of that same street. And I wondered if I would recognize Eva's house because, you know, that's a long time ago and I was only five. And I looked up and there it was. I didn't even have to read the address. I said, that's it. And he and Patrick checked the address and he said, yeah, you're right. And then the next house immediately next to it was the house of the perpetrator and there was another perpetrator, so I don't know if it was his friend. I thought it was they were brothers, but I don't know if it was his friend. I know they both were in Boy Scouts, so whoever this was was in his scout troop. But at least one of them lived exactly next door to Eva, the chain-smoking babysitter. And it just freaked me out and stunned me because there was a sidewalk in between the two houses as if they were just just feet away from each other. And I took a picture of the back door where the boys would come and knock. And it's yellow, which is so like happy and so strange. But there it was like right next door. And everything just all kind of fell into place for me of the proximity of this. And also the consideration that perhaps in some ways, even though I would not pretend to say that I am anywhere near someone who's been sex trafficked or anything like that. I know there are people that have much more horrendous stories than I do, but there I think was some sort of agreement between the babysitter and these boys. And in a in a small way, I believe I was trafficked by her. There was some sort of payoff. I don't even know if money exchanged hands, but there was some sort of something going on there. And besides the fact that they lived right next door, one block behind that was my elementary school, which I oddly have no memory of. I've heard that trauma can mess with you on so many levels and that it messes up with your memory and jumbles it. So I could remember some huge swaths of my memory, but I couldn't remember my elementary school. It's like my mind couldn't hold too much going on. And so it just held the traumatic things. And then we began to walk towards this very eerie park. And I had heard from other people in the area that other rapes and murders had happened in that park and that 
many people who were praying people felt the evil in that park. And, and even when my husband started walking in, he just said, this is a creepy place. And I agreed. It, it was very haunting. It felt the trees were extremely tall. This is the Northwest. So evergreen trees reaching to the sky, which is, you know, basically the premise of the novel I wrote watching the tree limbs because I was this little kid in a ravine. And the only thing I could beg for escape was tree limbs that seemed so high. I just wanted to fly away. So we walked through that park and took a few pictures and it was hard. It was, it was extremely hard. It was very heavy. One picture my husband took of me was with the sunshine behind me. And it, it was such a beautiful reminder that God redeems everything, even sexual violation. And as I, we were walking through, I kept saying to him, this park is somehow connected to my elementary school. I don't know how. And it didn't make sense when we were in it that it would. But we rounded a corner and I said, look down there. And I could see my elementary school at the very bottom of this hill. And that was exactly the place where the first rapes occurred. So I walked there and I, I gave more details to my husband just so we could pray about it and let it go. Um, I don't even know if I had told him all those things before. And they're, they're not yet for public consumption because they're too terrible. But I just remember looking down into the ravines where all the bracken was and the dirt and the rocks and all the things that they did and realizing this, I was a little tiny girl begging for escape and there was just no rescue. And so for those of you who feel that way, you have a story in your past that you asked to be rescued. I didn't know the Lord then, but I would think that he would have wanted to rescue me. I know that that's a problem. I know that that is a perplexity. And I'm, I just want to say I'm sorry to you for those of you who have walked through that where you haven't been rescued, but you desperately want to be. Recently, I was talking to a friend of mine and she was talking about a child that was going through a lot of pain and, and she didn't know if that child was going to be rescued from that pain or not. And I said, I don't know the answer. And I pray that he is rescued. That is my biggest prayer. I desperately want that. And I said, but even if not, Remember this, that God used that very detriment in my life. He used it to draw me to himself. I was desperate for a savior. I was desperate to know a daddy who would never leave me. I was desperate for him. And I so was a sponge needing love, but was kind of like when they put the sponge of vinegar up to Jesus when he was dying, I was drinking a lot of vinegar and nothing was satisfying me. And it caused me all this detriment and all this violation caused me to reach for the hand of my Savior who has taken my story and utterly restoried me. I won't make a rule based on what I've done in my hometown and, and going back to the scene of the crime. I mean, there was a lot of time and a lot of healing and a lot of counseling and a lot of prayer that went on between my place of violation and returning to it. So I won't give you a rule and say you need to go back. This is just something I felt like God wanted me to do to close a loose part of my story. I, I believe that we can get into cycles of pain when we do not have a closed loop on our story. And I have constantly been living on an open loop of the story that it had no conclusion. And I needed to just put my feet on the sidewalk in front of my house and put my feet on the sidewalk in front of Eva's house and put my feet on the sidewalk in front of that violator's house and put my feet on the, the trail of that park. And I needed to stand there and say, no, no, enemy, you cannot have victory in this anymore. I am a child of God. I have been saved. I have been rescued. I have been redeemed. I have been healed. And I am here to say, 
that God chooses the foolish and the weak and the broken of this world to shame the wise. And it just was a holy declaration of spiritual warfare. It was a holy declaration of it is finished. It is the end to that story. And I felt like I just had to do it. So I'm not going to prescribe that to you in your journey of healing, but I can say that for me, it was extremely good, but hard. Right after that, we went to have lunch with the two ladies to thank them. And I was fine during lunch and took a picture with them and thanked the one lady who had gone out of her way to help me tie up the loose ends of the story. And by the way, the one person I did find, the one violator, I haven't found the other, he died in the mid-2000s. And so there's, it's actually easy for me to move on because there's nothing I can do about it. I can't resurrect him. I can't yell at him. I can't ask questions. He's passed on. So that's over. But anyway, we had our lunch and my husband and I walked along the beach and then we were supposed to celebrate our anniversary that night. And we went to an island and it was a lovely place. But within an hour of being there, I got violently ill. I mean, so violently ill, I thought that I was going to need to go to a hospital. It was so bad. I was so, so sick. And it happened for 10, 12 hours of just being really sick. And I thought maybe it was so violent, I thought it was food poisoning. But now that I look back on it in retrospect, I am almost assured that that was trauma, that I was okay in the moment. But then afterwards, my body just couldn't hold on anymore. And I just had to expel all the evil from myself, if that makes sense, and let go of years of pain and violation and not being protected. And so I'm sorry, I'm going to hold it together here for this. It was a, it was hard. It was so hard. And I felt so alone. And I felt, I felt tempted in that moment to wonder where God was. What in the world? I go to do this brave, supposedly brave thing. I didn't feel very brave, but I supposedly did this brave thing. And the result is me throwing up all night. And so I made it through. I was praying a lot and asking God to please heal me before I got on an airplane. <laughs> and he did. He was very gracious. And now it's February of 2017. I'm a month and a half out from that experience, and I'm not healed yet. Just to be super honest, I'm still working through what that was. I'm, I still can't recount the story without tears, and I still have a hard time reconciling a loving God who allows that to happen to their child. Although I will on this next breath say that a loving God has healed me and that we do live in a world where people do evil things and they get to choose. God gives them the, the grace to be able to choose what they do. And it has given me more empathy for people who've walked through violation. It has given me a firmer resolve of this can't happen in our generation anymore. We've got to shed the light on sexual abuse. We've got to stand up and say that this is no longer, we're not going to hide this in the shadows. We're not going to let the church be a place that will not talk about it. And even some of the sexual violation that goes on in church, we're not going to prefer our reputation over the protection of children. And so in many ways, this has caused me to just rise up and say, you know what? Not on my watch not on my watch anymore. This is unacceptable. And the enemy is stealing and killing and destroying the children of this world by sexual violation. And it's just getting worse with the child porn industry that's just so evil and awful. And, you know, we're feeding it. Our society is feeding it by the sexualization of children at such a young age. And it is wrong. 
And, and I can't think of a worse way to destroy a human being than to take away their innocence like that. But I am living proof that the God of the universe absolutely is in charge. And he absolutely, as we run to him, he can heal us no matter what it is you've walked through. You don't have to have my story. You don't have to be in that place that I was to experience the outrageous generosity of our Lord who loves to run to his followers and heal them. I've often said an untold story never heals, and that is so true. We need to tell our stories, and it's the passion that I have behind the Restory show. It's that I want people to tell their story so you can say, oh, I'm not alone, and oh, there is hope, and oh, I can get better, and I don't have to be held hostage by my story. A buried story, a story that you bury in your soul only festers, and it comes out in the way that you live your life. It comes out in ways in your behavior that bewilders you. And the only way to get healed is not by decorating the outside of yourself and pretending nothing went wrong and and being stoic, but it's by letting that story out, by being brave to let it out to some very safe people. You have to trust the person you're sharing your story with, having them pray for you and possibly getting some counseling and, and just longing to be healed more than you long to hide the story. Satan loves to mask in darkness. He loves to keep everything inside so that we will not let it free. So I am determined, even though this story is still very raw and it doesn't have a conclusion yet, I'm determined that I was going to share it with you so that you could experience another perhaps me too moment or an aha, because that's why God put me on this earth. He, he put me on this earth as a storyteller to tell other people's stories, to tell your story, perhaps. If you want to share your story, just click the little icon on marriedmuth.com. There's a little microphone there and share your story and I'll throw it into the podcast and people will be praying for you. All the listeners of the Restory show will pray for you and what an amazing thing that will be. But that's why I'm doing this because I believe in the power of Jesus to change you in your story, to give you a new story, to restore you. I'm really happy to report that the Restory Conference is going to be happening again this year in September. It'll be at Lake Point Church, and just listen to this show for more information. Last year, we had about 250 people there. This year, I want to fill up that little auditorium. There's 900 seats, and I say little because my the other auditorium at my church is like 20,000 people or so, no, like 5,000 people. So I want to fill it up with people who want to be restoried. So that's my, that's what I wanted to share with you today for the first episode of season three. Next week, we'll go back onto the regular interview format where I'll be having on these amazing guests, but this week is just a special podcast so that you can know a little bit more about my story and where I came from. Thanks for listening to the Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Jesus, I, I, uh, I'm a mess. But you're the Messiah, and you came to save me, and I'm so grateful. And we just confess today that we're all a mess, and we need a Messiah. We need you. And all those questions of why did it happen, why didn't you rescue me, I'm just so grateful your shoulders are big enough to carry those, that we don't even have to have the answers. We can look for them, and we may not understand on this side of eternity. Someday, on the other side, it's all going to make sense. But right now, in the, in the turmoil of it all, Lord, would you grant us some peace? I pray for those in the audience today who have been violated, and I pray that you would give us the gumption to share our stories with safe people. And I pray for those who have hurt other people who live with an astounding amount of regret, 
And I just thank you that your grace is enough for the perpetrator and the one who is perpetrated against. That's how outrageously glorious your grace is. Would you give us a new story? Would you restory us today? That is my prayer. It's messy. It's not all tied up. There's still loose ends, Lord, but would you be the Lord of our messy story, of our loose-ended story? And would you just come in this moment, Holy Spirit, I pray by the power of Jesus Christ that you would intersect the broken lives that are listening to this podcast today, that you would bring hope that there is something new on the horizon. The old has gone, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the new is coming. So would you just please, to those who are thinking of taking their lives, would you lift the heaviness right now? Would you give them a new perspective, your holy perspective, that their life is worth living and that they are worth loving? I pray that you would cement that into their hearts today, that they would no longer believe the lies of the enemy, that they are unworthy, that they were worth being violated. That is a lie from the pit of hell, and I stand against it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Set these people free, Jesus. That is my prayer. I pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to know more information about today's show, you can head over to marriedmuth.com forward slash restory3-1. Don't forget the dash, otherwise it'll look like restory31. Restory3-1. And it is sincerely my hope and prayer that you will live a brand new story this week.